It's good to be gathered together in the presence of the Lord that we might hear the reading and the preaching of his word. And so if you would please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 as we continue in the series through the book of Hebrews. And this morning we want to look at verses 26 through 31. So Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 through 31. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 26, sorry, chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. Hear now the word of God. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief uh, word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful uh, that you speak to us as a father unto his children, that you feed us when we are hungry, and that as a father gives unto his children bread, so you give unto us Christ, the manna from heaven. You give us the outpoured spirit that flows from beneath your throne that we might never thirst again. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would feed us as only you can, that you would assuage our fears, that you would fill our hearts with courage and hope, that you would give unto us greater degrees of faith, that we might further be conformed to the image of your Son, and that we might bring you praise and glory. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Returning a product that you have purchased but that you just simply do not like seems to be a cornerstone within our Western capitalist society. If you purchase something and you change your mind, well, so long as the item is in good condition, you can return it for a full refund. There are, of course, some stores that have better return policies than others, I remember uh, working at a retailer that sold clothing, and uh, they wanted to have such good customer service, they once took back a lawnmower. (laughs) They didn't sell lawnmowers. I'm not sure how that person pulled that one off, uh, but they pulled it off nevertheless. But what if we're not talking about returning a product, but rather we want to return to something that we used to have some sort of experience that we once enjoyed, whether it's returning to a former church, returning to a former neighborhood, returning to a former school, returning to, say, a childhood home. I remember when I was on business travel once, I had the opportunity and time to be able to stop by the home that I grew up in, in the Bay Area and the West Coast in California. And I just remember thinking how small the house looked from the outside. I wasn't quite courageous enough to knock on the door and say, do you mind if I look around? I used to live here. I think that that might have creeped out the owners. Nevertheless, everything just looked very small. It wasn't the same. 
Well, perhaps we've heard the saying that was popularized in Tom Wolfe's novel, You Can't Go Home Again. You can't go back home to your family, back to your childhood, back home to a young man's dreams of glory and of fame, back to places in the country, back home to the old forms and systems of things which once seemed everlasting, but which were changing all the time, back home to the escapes of time and memory. Such is the nature of life. But it's also true of the march of redemptive history and to the unfolding plan of redemption. As Tom Wolfe says, you can't go home to the old forms and systems which once seemed everlasting. You see, the author of the book of Hebrews was trying to convince and persuade his recipients, you can't go back to the Old Testament. You can't go back home to the old system, to that which you thought was once everlasting. They were contemplating going back to the old ways of life, back to Judaism, back to the Mosaic Covenant with all of its sacrifices and rituals because they were enduring persecution for the sake of Christ. If you just look just a few verses down in verses 32 and 33, the author says, but recall the former days when you were once enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. And so as the heat turned up because of their faith in Christ, some wanted to jump out of the frying pan. It was getting uncomfortable for them. But what they didn't realize is that if they try to jump out of the frying pan of persecution, they would jump right out into the fire of the judgment of God. This was the danger that the author wanted to warn them against. But the author's second warning here, the first he gave in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, the second warning here is definitely much more intense in tone, and it's graver. And we need to recognize that in spite of the gloomy appearance, there's actually a, a soft sound and note of hope here in the midst of this warning. Namely, that the only hope that we have in this world or in the next is in God's embassy of peace, the embassy of peace that comes to us only through Jesus Christ. And so we want to give thought, first of all, to rebellion. Who precisely does the author of the book of Hebrews have in view here when he warns them, hey, don't go back? Secondly, we want to think about the consequences of going back. What happens to those who reject Christ? And then third and finally, hope. Why is it that Christ is our only hope? So rebellion, consequences, and hope. Now the warnings in Hebrews, as I said, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and then we could put the second one here in chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, have generated a lot of discussion in the history of the church as to who precisely the author of Hebrews is writing to. Who does he have in mind? Is he speaking of true believers, which means that uh, he's saying that a true believer could actually fall away from faith in Christ, that he could actually lose his salvation? Is that who the author has in view? Or does the author have nominal believers in mind, those who merely claim to be Christians, but in truth who are not? And so he's warning those people. So in other words, the true believers are not in view. It's only those who are nominal Christians. Well, I think a lot of the scholarly literature on this particular passage of Scripture presents this as an either 
or proposition. Either he's talking to true believers or he's talking to nominal believers. But what we have to recognize here is that the truth, I think, lies in between. It's not on the extremes, but rather it's in the middle. The church was and is and will be until the return of Christ a mixed body. The church always has unbelievers in its midst. And we could see this, for example, with the band of disciples that followed Jesus. You know, we could say that Christ's disciples constituted the first seminary class. The whole class failed the final, and one of the students in the class went and had the professor arrested. You know, if, if, if that little group right there shows you that the, the body of Christ is always a group of mixed believers, that there are unbelievers in the midst, and that even those believers are weak at times, then I don't know what does. And so we, I don't think we have to choose between a true believer and a nominal believer, but rather the author is simply addressing the church at large. He's not saying that if you're a true believer, you can fall away. But he is warning of the consequences that if you do think about falling away, here's the consequence that you can face. But a second point that I want us to note here is that Look as to how the author describes the person who abandons Christ. I don't believe that this is how we would describe a true believer. In verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Note that he says this person goes on sinning deliberately. Think of the significance of the statement in light of what the author has said heretofore in his letter, that he, God, has exalted the the Son of God as higher than the angels, and yet he was one that was made a little bit lower than the angels in his incarnation. He's one who came as a man. In Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And he is the one who has borne our sins. He has borne our transgressions. And it's by his sacrifice that he removes all of our guilt and our defilement. And yet, if in the knowledge of all of these glorious truths, that a person would willfully contemn, deliberately contemn the work of Christ. So I don't think that the author is dealing here with a person in the throes of temptation or who struggles with besetting sin, but rather one who willingly and willfully knows that they are deliberately sinning against Christ, that they are willfully abandoning him. So what are the consequences of such a willful and deliberate act? This brings us to our second point. In our own legal system, we know that uh, the penalty for a crime all depends upon the gravity of the offense. If you're driving your car and you accidentally strike someone, causing their death, you might be charged with manslaughter, perhaps negligent homicide. If, however, you're drunk, you're speeding, you're driving recklessly, then you might get charged with murder. Or if you premeditate your crime, then you can be charged with first-degree murder. And, of course, with each degree of crime, there is a corresponding degree of penalty. 
greater the crime, the greater the punishment, the greater the consequences. Well, this is the pattern that unfolds in the Old Testament. If you were guilty of a minor sin, then you might have to go outside the camp. You might have to seek the ritual cleansing. And then once you were cleansed, you could return to the camp, return to the presence of the people, uh, return to the presence of God. But if you were guilty of a capital offense, such as premeditated murder or blasphemy, then you could suffer the death penalty, such as stoning outside the camp. Now follow the logic here that the author uses as he traces the unfolding plan of redemptive history. Remember, throughout this epistle, he has said that Christ is greater than the angels. He's greater than the priests. He's greater than Aaron, greater than Melchizedek, greater than Joshua, Moses, the sacrifices, and the law. And if an Israelite was liable to capital punishment under the Mosaic law, under Moses' sets of laws... Then what penalty is there for the person who knowingly, deliberately, and willfully rejects Christ? He says in verses 28 and following, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Now here is, the author pulls no punches. He doesn't candy coat anything. He calls, we could say, it. he, he calls it what it is. And with his forthright bluntness, he shows his recipients that this is what awaits you if you abandon Christ. He warns the recipients that really there are only two places to stand in this life. Bluntly stated, it's either Christ or hell and nothing in between. I think the recipients, on the other hand, thought that they could walk away, seek a less persecuted life, and maybe steer clear of the danger. But they were trying to turn back the clock or the hands of the clock of redemptive history. They were trying to turn it backwards. They were trying to unring the bell. They were trying to go back home to the old ways that they knew. It's like I have a friend, he and his wife are are building a a cabin uh, and it's it's somewhere somewhere in the Mississippi outback. We'll just say that. I'm not exactly sure where it is. And uh, they've had their, their property for a number of years. And for a number of years, they've, they've had a trailer on it. Except uh, my friend has said that uh, the trailer is on its last legs. He said it kind of leaks at times when it's raining. They have found perhaps a, a rodent or two, you know, uh, underneath the bed. And I can't help but think that Who of us would think that this friend of mine and his wife were in their right mind if upon the completion of their nice, uh, you know, custom cabin would then say, no, we don't want to go in the cabin that has running water, that has central air and heat, uh, that has a nice roof, that has great insulation, that has, you know, great decorations, We want to go back to the rodent-infested trailer that leaks. Nobody would think that they were in their right mind. They would say, uh, maybe you need to go to the doctor to get checked out. There's no going back. 
There's no third alternative. There's no happy medium between the two extremes. In our own day, I think that the temptations to seek a third way are strong given the individualistic nature of our culture and the salad bar spirituality that so many people have. People want enough of Jesus to be saved, but enough of the world so that they don't stand out too much. They want a custom theology where they can pick and choose the truths that appeal to them and pass by those other truths that don't appeal to them as if they were at a food buffet. Do we want salvation? Yes, I want salvation. Do I want eternal life and eternal peace? Yes. Do I want health and God's providential care over me? Yes. Do I want to sacrifice any of my desires? No. Uh, Do I want to uh, give up worldly pursuits or pleasures? Not really. Uh, Do I want to perhaps uh, spend uh, extravagant amounts of money on things that might otherwise be considered idolatrous? No, not really. Can I have all of these things together? Can I have my cake and can I eat it too? That's not the way that the scriptures present the truth of the gospel. When God, for example, gave to Israel uh, the first and greatest commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and following, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says. He doesn't say the Lord our God is many. You can worship the Lord your God and any other series of deities that you want. You can have a little bit of God and then a a little bit of Baal. What is it that Joshua said? Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, as he challenged the Israelites, he says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's either Christ or nothing. It's either heaven or hell. And so this is why the author says in chapter 10, verses 30 and 31, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So here they thought they could escape the frying pan of persecution, but didn't realize they would jump into the the fire of the judgment of God. There are only two places to stand, and this is why the church, or sorry, the, the author was warning the whole church, because there was no way he could humanly overlook and see among his recipients who it was that was really truly contemplating abandoning the gospel. And so he just addresses them all. Now, as we think about this particular warning, we might think, well, this isn't necessarily all that encouraging. You know, it might strike perhaps a bit of fear into our hearts because we think, yeah, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't want to abandon God. But at the same time, if the author is warning about this, maybe this is a reality of which I need to fear. And yet as strong as the warning is, I want us to also see here how bright the rays of light and hope are that shine forth from it, which brings us to our third and final point. If we only focus upon the warning, I think we're going to fail to see the glorious promise of the hope that we have in Christ. Yes, the consequences are grievous. 
the consequences are grievous. And this is often the case that we, we diminish the nature of the consequences of abandoning Christ. We diminish the consequences of hell. But what we don't realize is that if we diminish the consequences and the severity of sin, what we're also doing is we're turning down the importance of the gospel. The consequences are severe. The threat is real. It is intense. It is grievous. But that only elevates the glory of the hope of salvation that we have through Christ. The consequences are terrible, but the blessings are even greater. And so we mustn't forget all that the author has said thus far. Just a few verses back in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying, look at the alternatives. You have salvation in Christ. Don't turn your back on it. Because apart from Christ, there's only judgment. I think in my mind, one of the most powerful images in the scriptures of the nature of Christ's saving work comes to us in Christ's lament over Jerusalem, which in many respects, I think the author of Hebrews is echoing the same truths as Christ wept over Jerusalem. He said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would gather you, uh, gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. As Christ uttered these words, as he wept over Jerusalem, he's saying, how I want to gather you in, but you are unwilling. I want to protect you. I want to redeem you. But you're unwilling. You you want to stray. And I think sometimes the imagery here is perhaps, uh, it's misunderstood because we think of a hen brooding over her chicks and it invokes peaceful and and gentle thoughts, because after all, you you have to be quiet while a hen is brooding over her eggs. You don't want her to be startled. You don't want her to crack the eggs. And any time you're dealing with eggs, you have to be gentle, right? But I don't think that this is what Jesus is saying. I want you to think of a barn fire. When a barn has been set ablaze, And it's burning to the ground. And the chicks run to the mother hen for shelter. And the mother hen covers the chicks beneath her wings. And she shelters them from the furnace of the fire. So that once the fire is cleared, you find the mother hen 
cooked to death. But as you pull the mother hen back, you find the chicks that are all safe and sound because the mother hen gathered her chicks beneath her wings to protect them from the fire. So when Christ says, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing, he says, seek shelter beneath my wings that I might protect you from the wrath of God that is real and that is coming for sinners. And this is the hope that we should see shining forth from this passage. That we would seek shelter beneath the mighty wings of Christ and out of his great love recognize that he gives us life for us, for his children. This is the great hope that the author holds out. The hope that all true believers will hear in the author's warning. This is ultimately not a warning that as a true believer you could fall away from Christ. Rather, what this is, is this is a clarion call to all true believers that says Christ is the only hope of salvation. Cling fast to him. Recognize that he will protect you from the wrath of God. That it is only his perfect work and suffering and obedience that satisfies the demands of the law that we might have eternal life, that we might have hope and peace and joy. And so this is why the author of Hebrews was warning his recipients that they couldn't go home again. Things had changed. The hands of the clock of redemptive history had advanced. Jesus has come in his sacrifice and his sacrifice alone are the only remedy for our sin, guilt, and shame. We can either stand alone And suffer the fire and the wrath of God. But remember, as the author says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or we can seek shelter beneath the wings of Christ and know that we have eternal life because he has borne the wrath of God upon his mighty wings. And he has given us life that we might live. In the end, the author warns us that there's only two places to stand, with Christ or with hell. And the answer, of course, should be clear as to where we should stand. In words that I love to quote, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have given us shelter beneath the mighty wings of Christ as the hot, fiery furnace blast of your wrath goes forth against sinners, against those who refuse to embrace the gospel of Christ. We rejoice that you have given unto us the gift of faith that we might believe in him and that we can rejoice in knowing that through his suffering, through his cry of God forsakenness upon the cross, that he has borne your wrath that we might know your love, that we might know peace, that we might know redemption, that we might know joy and eternal life. Oh, Father, what wonderful manner of love is this, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. But we know at the same time, O Lord, that at times we as your children wander. Sometimes we get filled with doubts 
We wonder whether or not Christ is true, whether the claims of his gospel are genuine. Father, forgive us for these moments of doubt. We pray that you would fill our hearts with hope. Help us to know that, O Lord, that you have given us so much in Christ. At the same time, Lord, maybe it's not persecution. Maybe we struggle because we wonder whether or not you have forgotten us. We cry out to you in prayer, seeking deliverance from our ailments, seeking deliverance from the difficult circumstances in our lives, wondering, O Lord, if you hear. And it is these circumstances that causes our faith to weaken. Forgive us, Father, for not trusting you. Forgive us, Lord, for our anger in those moments of doubt. Forgive us, O Lord, for the moments of fear that we have when we doubt. Strengthen our faith. Help us to know that if you have given us Christ, you have given us all. And that everything else, O Lord, is in your sovereign hands. Give us the patience that we need to know that even through those difficulties and those trials that you are conforming us more and more to the image of Christ, that more of him would shine forth rather than more of us. Grant us this, we pray, not for our sake, but for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our greater conformity unto the holy and righteous image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.